Well, Dan, we got a bit of time uh, before the guests show up uh-huh. this week's episode. <laughs> um, so maybe we should just explain. What guests are these? Hur- uh, you know, the oh, guests. Oh, the guests. The guests. <laughs> we got Colin Powell. We got the other Don guy Rumsfeld. who just died. Rumsfeld. Yeah, they're all, they're all going to be here. No, seriously, for those nerds. cast of characters. <laughs> Evil goons. Podcast favorites. <laughs> yeah, ghouls, specters. Ghouls. Spooks, even. Spooks. Um, <laughs> Save it for the Halloween episode. <laughs> oh, good idea! <laughs> Halloween episode, more CIA stuff on its way. Um, no, seriously, Shit, for the listener, like, thought ahead. <laughs> if only next year. Um, seriously, for the listener, we do have some huge guests coming up later on. They'll be here. They've promised us they'll be here. Uh, so just wait, and it'll be a great surprise. The guests are coming. In the meantime, Dan, 52 episodes. I've been told there are 52 weeks in a year and we do an episode every week. Therefore, <laughs> some basic maths. <laughs> some basic maths. We're here. We've made it to 52 episodes. Therefore, we are declaring ourselves to have been podcasting and therefore to have been podcasters <laughs> for exactly ish one year. Exactly ish. Um, and so, I don't know. And so, and yeah. so there we go. Yeah. Well done, us. <laughs> well done, us. This episode's going to be a bit of a well done, us kind of thing. <laughs> Good job, uh, Dan and Jack. We did it. Because um, if you can't be self-congratulatory, <laughs> what's the point? If you can't be self-congratulatory in your sect, then there is no reason <laughs> to be doing it in the first place. Um, a year ago, Dan, more or less, uh, we began this show at, to talk about broad beans mainly um <laughs> and we wound up talking about politics i think um i don't know how it happened <laughs> yeah it's a very odd it's thing that we didn't actually know that much about broad beans <laughs> yeah we didn't really yeah, know that out. much about politics either but there aren't that many readings that one can do on broad beans <laughs> on a weekly basis and we decided it would be more viable as a <laughs> podcasting project um, this week the aqua dulce bean <laughs> just reading the packets of broad <laughs> yeah. beans yeah. Yeah. So, uh, broad beans notwithstanding, um, continued to talk socialist politics. And I think, um, did I make a joke at one point? No, actually, I don't know. Still socialists, which is good. I think we've engaged with some <laughs> oh, material. Yeah, I think you did joke that we might be fascist <laughs> by episode 10. I mean, clearly it was so a 10. joke, but yeah. also, episode 10. Jesus. And I think I might have quipped that I wasn't even sure we were going to get to episode 10. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Look at so. us. I think it's Shit. funny. We were talking about uh, which episodes have gotten like the most engagement, the most lessons, and it's very funny because it's like Devil's Chessboard, which we kind of just did as like a light, like not light, but like a like, hey, you know, kind of mix it up and do a little like crankery. Um, <laughs> we, we did it because Jack is like, <laughs> is like you scratch the surface and it's just surface and it's just crank all the way down. <laughs> it's all and so crank. We just had to put that one, just a little bit of appeasement. Well, He's okay, the okay, okay. We'll um, talk about JFK, and I think under it's... the guise of talking about like uh, the CIA and foreign policy, but yeah. really, I mean, I think we, we just did... wanted to solve that case. We well, we fooled the listeners into thinking we solved the case because Dan was obviously fucking Oswald. I know, right? Duh, it was yeah. Oswald. Um, yeah. Yeah. The man can shoot, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> and it's that and our Althazer episode has gotten some listens, uh, which I think is like, I'm not going to let myself cringe at that, but it's hilarious. I think that's yeah. so funny. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that episode, we clearly had no idea what we were talking about. 
I mean, it's the, not the only episode where we had no idea what we were talking that about. That was the one. But the episode, episode was a real struggle, a very self-conscious knowing struggle. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was a slog. And I think we decided we weren't going to read any more French people. <laughs> we did. And I think we may we have succeeded. I, I think we have, so yeah. Good. <laughs> That's funny because we were like, oh my God, 70 pages. Jesus Christ, this is a slog. And he starts talking about, hey, dude, you ever notice that schools and work are the same thing? And it's just like, <laughs> oh my God, I'll do so Jesus. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. we should I learned re-engage. that from listening to Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's that. Um, the Crankery episodes have done <laughs> well, which I think is very funny. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. What does that say? What does that say? I guess it says that we're uh, a socialist podcast and people just like to hear crank shit, I guess. Um, yeah. What else? I mean, it says something about the SoundCloud algorithm, <laughs> I guess. It says something about society. Yeah. Yeah. We live in one, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, and we all know that societies are ruled by algorithms. So. <laughs> yes, that's true. Mm. Structural algorithms. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and so, Dan, here we are one year later, and we've picked up a few listeners along the way. Not like in a, not an inconsequential amount and not a consequential amount. Uh, and we love each and every one of them. Um, but I suppose... Uh, on this, our one-year anniversary, we can maybe get you to explain the name of the show again. <laughs> <laughs> Just so I can write it down and uh, remember. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this today, and I was thinking about things that we might end up talking about, particularly if we found ourselves having exhausted the things that we wanted to talk about a bit early. Because <laughs> we do endeavor to produce a, a certain amount Some of content. material. <laughs> yeah. Of varying qualities. But Every we, week we, we want to do three hours. Try and do a consistent length. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're not going to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're never going to become like three-hour podcasters or anything. If we do, something's gone wrong. Because I'm not editing that shit. <laughs> you have no idea. Uh, <laughs> but I was thinking that given that the only time we ever explained why the name Auxiliary Statements got picked for the podcast was in either the introductory episode, which um, I think relatively few people have listened to, mm. and... After the Althusser episode is probably the most, mm. for me, perhaps, um, cringeworthy. I don't the know. The introduction? Yeah. yeah I, haven't, I literally haven't gone back and listened to that no, one no, no. because I would imagine that it would be. Yeah. Maybe yeah. we'll surprise ourselves. I'd like to think so. That's I'm letting it, the the cringe build up in myself so that no matter what, no matter how bad it is, I go back and I'm like, it's not as bad as that. It's not as bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, So for anybody who hasn't listened to that episode and hasn't listened to episode 11 that we did when we read Hilary Putnam's episode uh, essay, The Corroboration of Theory. Yeah, famed podcaster Hilary Putnam. Um, Auxiliary statement. Mm. Uh, A piece of terminology from the philosophy of science. A piece of terminology created by Hilary Putnam, I understand. Although used in reference to Karl Marx by an author whose name I always forget in a book that I own (laughs) and also cannot remember the title of. This is the one we almost read instead of Marxism and Politics, right? Mm, Or we we read like bits of it. Yeah, maybe we we ostensibly read it for the introductory episode. Yeah. We read the introduction. Oh yeah, you sent me photos of the pages. That's right. That's right. Wow, crazy. There's a um yeah, a uh a boomer a desp- yeah, quite, yeah, I was going to say desperately sad uh, <laughs> reveal behind the curtain, but yeah, 
Just, <laughs> just a boom moment. A dimly lit room lit by candle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I am a boomer in a millennial's body, I think. <laughs> um, I do. I have my boomer, some senior boomer moments. We all do. We yeah. respect it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the book's called Marx's Politics or oh, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Anyway, Hillary Putnam uses the phrase auxiliary statement in an effort to provide a counter-narrative to what it is that scientists do to the one that's offered by um, that guy whose name I always Carl forget. Bobber. No, th- Huh? Yes, Carl yeah. Popper. <laughs> this is the relationship Jack and I have now. Jack says something, I automatically say no, and then realize <laughs> no, actually, no, 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 he no. is right. <laughs> and I should learn to listen to him. <laughs> oh. uh, no, I've long since learned to listen to you. <laughs> That's good. Uh, yeah, it helps. <laughs> <laughs> listen to your podcast hosts, <laughs> co hosts. Listen That's to that. your co hosts. <laughs> <laughs> um, Karl Popper arguing that all that scientists do is attempt to disprove their theories. Mm. Hillary Putnam comes along and says, no, that's not that's not what they do. Um, and he develops this idea whereby what scientists do is develop scientific laws, but the scientific laws that they provide don't actually do don't actually necessarily provide any um real world have any real world explanatory value and it's only in combination with auxiliary statements that the uh, scientific laws gain some explanatory value Mm. now in application to what Karl Marx does in his um, theoretical work the sort of like the direct application to Marx would be that Marx has a series of scientific laws but then it's constantly um, supplementing them, adding to them, revising them as they meet the real world. Mm. Giving them nuance even. Yes. Just like, yeah. Not hard uh, and fast. Maybe. <laughs> what was the example that was given in Marx's politics? It was about the Irish working class, right? And about kind of like their relationship with the British working class. Yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. I think that the, the, the observation being that a racist or xenophobic sentiment was being inspired amongst the English working class in relation to the Irish and immigrant Irish working class in the UK, um, or like a schism in the working class was being created by this national or racial distinction. Um, and therefore the revolutionary potential of the working class was being undermined oh, that's right. as Marx observed it mm. via um, <clears throat> the importation of a working class who would then pay differently, lived separately. Mm. Well, blah, I wonder blah, if there's like another country where that's happened for its entire existence. <laughs> we'll never know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um, and I think in partially in my desperation to pick a title for the podcast mm. and partially with very high-minded aspirations for the kind of podcast it might be, the kind of work we might be in the position to do. Um, thought I thought that it might be a appropriate conceit for a podcast to say, 
here we are potentially adding to or revising or finding, at least reading from people who have updated or reading from people whose theories could be used to update, add to, synthesize with a political theory and a political philosophy, I suppose, or a theory of politics which um, is received by most people in common wisdom as being either outdated or disproven or um, doctrinaire, dogmatic. Mm. Um, now, I don't know whether that's what we've ended up doing. Um, I don't know whether it has ever been our aspiration to actually do that. Um, Hell of a name, though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's 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 great fun telling people what your podcast is called, and then they'll be, like, oh, be like, "Oh, cool. what? Okay, <laughs> yeah, right, right. I'll remember that." Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember when? Yeah, we... no, but I've never told anybody once, and they've been like, "Oh, okay." And then I've assumed that they will remember what it's called. Remember when we were trying to figure out if it was auxiliary statements or auxiliary statement? Mm. I think auxiliary statement, and I've only just realized this, would have completely defeated the entire purpose of calling it auxiliary statements because it's like, no, there's only one. It's yeah, like, one. oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's one auxiliary statement. Oh, I see what statement. you mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, great. If an auxiliary statement is like... Uh, Indicative or representative <laughs> of the ability to yeah. update and transform but, uh, and change, but you only have one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you once have it's decided, it. it's set forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what has it kind of turned into? I think I've just basically used it as. I mean, we did say this at the beginning, right? Like, I don't know if I otherwise. I'm not going to say I don't know. I wouldn't have otherwise read all of the stuff that we've read for the show had it not been for this. So it is I, like. The main driver is just like wanting to understand how fucking insane things are and why things are so insane. And it's just been pretty kind of educational. And I know that like, I don't know, when we, when we kind of like, yeah, when we talk about why we're doing it and stuff, we were talking the other day about like how there is such a grasp right now to be anti-capitalist. But beyond that, so many people... I think definitely myself included for a long time, like didn't really understand what that meant. It was just this vague, like, you know, yeah, things are bad. But like, there are a lot of people who are, I think, kind of in our shoes and needing to like understand why things are the way that they are. And I think that for me, it's just slowly developed into something where it's just like, eh, it's a research project that I can just treat as banally as I want to, right? Because it's like, if I didn't have the like, night before we record, like, fuck, I gotta finish this, fuck, fuck, fuck. There's no way we, I would have read... Uh, even the first page, well, not the first page of Capital, <laughs> but <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, probably wouldn't have gotten through Origin of Capitalism as easily or, um, well, Devil's Chessboard, yes, but you know what I mean. Yeah, like, probably yeah, wouldn't yeah. Have sat I mean, exactly the same position. Or, like, there are yeah. so many times where there are things that we've read for this that I have previously tried to sit down and read and then yeah. there's a sort of, like, the... Uh, the self-imposed force of having to, or intending to, <laughs> desiring to produce yeah. uh, podcast material in varying forms and quality mm. has sort of necessitated doing that work. And yeah, I agree. Like that for me, the 
the most tangible outcome is just having read the things that we've read, yeah, which I otherwise wouldn't have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and not just that, right? But the like, I guess we all know this, or like, I suppose maybe it bears saying for somebody who's now experiencing it, like, um. There really is no better way to properly familiarize yourself with some material or try to incorporate it in not only like retain it as information, but incorporate it into a generalized worldview. There is no better way to do that than to try and explain it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) To other people. Yeah. Um, And this is a much nicer way to do it than either constantly boring your friends or in addition to that. or just hectoring strangers <laughs> i mean i suppose this is a kind of hectoring of strangers although yeah. um they do have the opportunity to walk away it's or... a parasocial hectoring yeah guess, which is worse <laughs> worse is than getting worse? your ass yeah. kicked at a pub by someone who's like shut up yeah 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 um mm. yeah maybe we should think of ourselves as kind of like nuts on a soapbox on the street corner but like <laughs> I've always wanted, since I've been out here, I've always wanted to go to the famous thing in yeah, London. Speaker's that Corner. About. Yeah. Is, have you been there? Yes. Is it worth it? Or is it just kind of crazy for you? I don't know. Um, yes and yes, bro. Okay. <laughs> um, I've only people. ever been there a few times because quite a lot of protest marches sure. have a tendency to start near there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've sort of passed by and sort of witnessed it. But only briefly. Mm. Maybe we should go. We should go. You record the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> just do some interviews. Oh, I just got cracks. hit by an egg. <laughs> <laughs> some cabbage. Um, um, well, I mean, I think with all of that in mind, um, and the fact that we have picked up some very handsome, nice listeners, and just for our own kind of like continuity's sake, I think it's worth kind of walking people through our, our thought process, I think, as the show has kind of gone on. Because like, Unless there's a big bombshell, I think it's safe to say we won't be going back and reading something from Tribune anytime soon. <laughs> hey, Tribune, you know, Tribune, Tribune. But, you know, I, I think may, perhaps we've moved on from that. Um, so I think maybe it's worth maybe just explaining kind of how we came to the podcast and kind of where we're at now that might be different. Um, I'm interested to know how things have changed for you because I think that, like, we've definitely had things that we've read that we've shared that have been like uh kind of like perspective changing for sure um but i think for both of us we've definitely vibed with different things um so yeah i'm interested to know dan who are you (laughs) (laughs) well i still haven't haven't quite decided where i was at when i started this podcast apropos you know, this general movement that everybody made in the UK toward the Labour mm. Party or similarly, I suppose, in the US, like the strange convergence on the Bernie Sanders, the the, mm. the two Bernie Sanders campaigns for president. Um, quite how I feel about that, because I suppose, um, like a lot of people, I may have come from a place which might have been critical or skeptical of that politics and then accepted it very readily and i haven't quite decided whether i've come out the other end of that yet yeah 
and where that leaves me. And I know, I mean, I know we've joked, we, we, to some extent, we've talked about this a few times. I've joked about it a few times. Like my either tendency toward a degree of sort of like reactive liberalism or social democracy, mm. my the ease with which I fall back into um, accepting a discourse which is the discourse of the broad social democratic left as it exists in the UK because that is the left as it exists, I suppose. Uh, yeah, can I just so, say real quick on that that like... I think I've been kind of trying to come to terms with that as well. And I think I've just, because like we asked the question a couple times on the show, like, why is it that everybody from like anarchists to like whatever converged on Sanders in America and like the same thing with Corbyn here? And it's like, I don't know. I just, it's just like, wh why not? What, what, you know, just let's just see what happens, right? It's like, if you could get Corbyn to like actually be the PM, if you could get Bernie Sanders to be the president, yeah, just just see what happens. You know what I mean? Because it would probably be, it would probably wind up being better if for no other reason than just nominal, like, improvements to the lives of working class people. Let's just see what happens. Maybe there's, like, hey, somebody's using, you know, terms like uh, class in American politics. again. Let's just see what happens. I think that's where I've kind of just come out with. Yeah. And so, I don't know. If there are people who are, like, ashamed of, like, being part of those movements, it's like, say, we just wanted to see what would happen. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A broad degree of hope and optimism. Hope and optimism and also just like, I mean, who who can predict what would happen? You know what I mean? It's like, in all likelihood, if Sanders was president, yeah, it would just be another Democrat in office. But he uses terms like class and then walks around and just stabs you in the back because he doesn't actually do anything for you. But hey, some guy on national stage talking about class. Good. You know what I mean? Obviously, dude's not a communist. Uh, but I think at least in Sanders's, uh estimation like i think he's done more for class consciousness than uh i have mm -hmm. <laughs> so cool you know yeah yeah it part it's partly optimism it's partly just like i don't know what's gonna happen you know so yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i think for me there's another aspect to it which is that through quite through the bulk of the sort of the corbyn years i spent a long time engaging with familiarizing myself with learning to articulate arguments which were arguments that were given in favor of those kind of social democratic reforms. Oh, sure. And so I think that I incorporated a lot of those ideas and arguments into being ones which I would like defend and perhaps argue for. Mm. Maybe just as a kind of exercise, right? Like I'm exposing myself to these ideas and thinking that I might want to propagate them. So um, adopting them as my own and still, so I still have this reflexive fallback onto um, a sort of like the broad social democratic ideas that you get given in like, say uh, on Navarra media or in Tribune mm. or something. Um, and then also I think I did sort of like, I did try and justify to myself or develop an argument which I was comfortable with, which said that there was a reformist there is a there there was a process that could be set in train by 
the election of a Labour government led by Jeremy Corbyn with John McDonnell as the shadow chancellor, there might be a process that would be begun by that which could fundamentally transform some key portions of our economic model as it functions that would be yeah progressive and uh, sort of like fundamental change i suppose mm. um and so i think though i did spend some time really toying with what with being with the arguments for radical social democracy and i guess out and out reformism yeah i think it, yeah well i think it just to say too i think it's hard to understand how much of what wound up happening to Sanders and to Corbyn and to everyone else kind of just like them was like a fait accompli. You know what I mean? Because it's like, whether or not it was, is definitely going to inform strategies moving forward. And I think like now it's really easy to just be like, all right, that doesn't work. Fuck it. Um, Democrats will never let anything good happen. Uh, Labor Party is just stuck in this coalition in a coalition and everything just sucks ass now. Move on from them. Forget about it. Um, but it's also very easy to be sucked back in, right? Because it's like, again, nominal improvements to the lives of working class people are better, and those two parties are in the best possible position to do something even small, right? So even if it's just on a local level or something, so it's like, I don't know, is there a universe, like, where Corbyn could have succeeded and made those fundamental changes? Yeah, probably, but also, like, I don't know. I don't really know how to come to terms with, like, being like we were that close you know what i mean to like something big happening we were that close uh, yeah i don't know i mm, think it's where mm, i come away mm. with it yeah i think i think that we perhaps weren't that close mm. i mean we sometimes come across the idea of, well i suppose we i was reading a mike mcnair piece from mm. the weekly worker yeah in preparation for this yeah. um it's also similar to the ideas that we came across in the first chapters of the revolutionary strategy book, right? But I feel like with Corbynism, well, with 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 like broadly, with generally like radical social democratic projects, the argument is that they will not be allowed to happen or they will not be allowed to succeed. And in some cases, that's via like military coup. But I think in the context of Corbynism, it was just there was this this huge reaction from the sort of media and political establishment that just made that project at least unviable for as an electoral project. Whether it's as an economic project, it was ever going to be able to succeed, I don't know. Um, but as a political as a political project radical social democracy minded toward something that you might think of as being um, change of a revolutionary sort uh, might not be a viable political strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think the main the main point in that the McNair article, for, I forget exactly when it's from, but like, it is just we need to be thinking about a party in a different sense, right? And that's absolutely true, because I think if the question is like, oh, is it like, is it bound to happen that like, you know, movement in the Labour Party, movement within the Democrats is like doomed to, you know, the, basically like the bourgeoisie just stopping it no matter kind of what. Um, 
if that's doomed to failure, yeah, I think the answer is yes. But it's like, if you're able to frame that within like a, a wider class-based movement and kind of like expand your idea of a party, no, right? And I mean, maybe there's like an extremely, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, like a nice reading of what Corbin was doing about like expanding the CLPs and like expanding the power of the communities and the labor party within the communities is like being like a bourgeoisie equivalent to that. And I think that's what we were really excited about when we read the Tribune. But like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's just the proper takeaway from it is that any kind of successful political movement will have to be class-based, you know? And like yeah. the implications for that with like, for right now are the confusing thing because it's like work with Democrats, work against Democrats, kind of like try and be sneaky with Democrats. Like, you know, I mean, who knows? That is just like the idea of like a coalition within a coalition, right? Because, yeah. Sure, know. yeah. We we saw the community organizing aspects of Corbyn's Labour Party. We saw it's sort of like, quote unquote, mass mm. party qualities, I suppose, in terms of like, the, the 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 rapid growth in the membership and a idea of what that membership could do as a force within the community for propagating the ideas for and for making um the labor party a mass party and therefore like a party with societal roots rather than mm. something like separated from society in westminster <laughs> Uh, but I'm, I, but I guess the 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 missing quality in that is that the Labour Party does not aim at class independence. Sure, and that's the fundamental quality of the Marxist Party, the Marxist Socialist Party, is that mm -hmm. kind of like aspiration to um, foster the independence of the working class and build its capacities, um, have a separate existence a separate culture to be a social force that could replace and take over the running of society mm. at the crucial moment yeah it'd be so cool to be able to get a politician like corbin to just be candid <laughs> you know what i mean because it's like obviously dudes get a background in like reading marxism and stuff like that and it'd just be really interesting to get in someone's head and allow them to just not be a politician for a second and to just talk to them about like your thinking as a politician like at some of the highest levels of mm. power in society right now and kind of like what you're thinking about doing. If you kind of just get brain rotted or whatever from being in politics, bourgeois politics for so long, or if there was part of them that's just like, I'm doing my best. <laughs> you know what I mean? It would, mm. I don't know, it'd be interesting. Yeah, I'm not really sure what, how you would describe Corbyn's politics. Yeah, well, sure, yeah. Um. Which is, I think, something that's interesting because I think it's pretty easy to define... Bernie's politics as being someone who's like, whoa, hey, we still love America. America's still pretty good. We're still part of this government. We don't want to be against the government or anything like that. But yeah, it's a bit trickier with Corbyn. Yeah. Yeah, I guess in terms of like the the distinction between whether one would be constitutional in one's politics or mm -hmm. anti-constitutional, quote unquote, insurrectionary in some way. Yeah. Or at least not a display loyalty to the constitutional order like Jeremy Corbyn in his politics or in his sort of like his life in politics represents a strain which is much more skeptical of 
the constitutional order or is is at least read by conservatives as being anti-constitutional or um, as being some kind of threat, mm. largely because of his like uh, foreign policy outlook, right? Like, mm. The photo else? of him in front of the Kremlin. <laughs> <laughs> um but in terms of like what kind of social what what he represents to the socialist movement, I suppose, whether um, his politics is fundamentally liberal in some way. Yeah, um, I think so. Whether yeah. he aspires towards some kind of idea of socialism, but whether it's yeah, whether it's a socialism that recognizes the necessity for some kind of, whether it's a class-based socialism, whether it's a politics predicated on class struggle, or whether it's like a, almost a paternalistic socialism. Well, it's like, I wonder where he, like on that end, like I wonder where, when he was like at the height of his quote unquote like power, right? When things were looking good, like I wonder how he saw himself in like history right if he was like i'm bridging the gap between like liberal politics and some kind of like social ideal or if he was just kind of more of like a bernie like people's lives could be better <laughs> you know what i mean mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i think he's just a fundamentally moral character and wanted yeah. to make people's lives better yeah um i had somebody else um make this argument recently and i would quote them if i could remember who they were um <laughs> Basically just suggesting Carl that Popper. basically just suggesting that like John McDonald and Jeremy Corbyn are very diligent uh members of parliament, constituency MPs. Hundred percent. Attend their surgeries, hear people's concerns, and just want to make people's yeah. lives better. I mean when you whenever and you wanted hear, to get like... that opportunity, regardless of like long term strategy for the Labour Party or for the workers' movement in general, like they wanted to win that election and they wanted to make people's lives better. I mean, like whenever you hear like John McDonald talk or get interviewed, it is like, oh God, it, his constituency is around Heathrow, right? Or something like yes, that. I think so, it yeah. is usually like, Christ, everybody got laid off because of COVID. We're trying to figure this out. Christ, we got to get people food. It's like, John, you want to talk about socialism? He's like, I can't even get these people fed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're definitely right there. What's funny about John McDonald's politics is that... Um, I think of him as being somebody who has a much more radical base to his economic theories, but as being somebody who wants to couch those potentially radical proposals or economic, his economic proposals which are potentially predicated on radical theoretical foundations, he wants to present them as being non-threatening to capitalism and to the social order kind of mm. thing. He wants to almost represent them as kind of being no-brainers, mm. as being what you would do if you were just a rational actor in any, I guess, in any political party, right? Of any political persuasion, here are the sort of like rational, sensible, almost said sensual. <laughs> sensual. Sensual aspects of John McDonald's politics. Um, yeah, oh there's, there's my, there's oh my Freudian moment for oh the day. No. <laughs> Get um, talking about John we're, we're not linger on it for now. But <laughs> there you go. Well, I think that's a huge mistake, right? Not your faux pas. <laughs> I mean, like, I think that's a huge. There is something incredibly sexual about John. <laughs> He's a sexy man, folks. Uh -huh. um, it's a huge mistake, I think, to couch it in terms of like we can convince people to do the right thing. It's like no, you can't because you're not convincing people, right? It's like you're. This isn't. You can't convince 
capitalism away. Obviously, that's not really quite what he's trying to do, but it's like, can we just stop trying to like convince Zuckerberg to do the right thing and stop trying to like convince Bezos to, you know, chill out? It's like, that's a mistake. And I think that that's like where the anti kind of establishment idea of Mike McNair's theory is so valuable because it's just like, okay, let's stop being nice. Like mm. nobody else is nice in politics. We don't have to convince these people to do the right thing. And because that is just another like socialism from above, do the right thing. You know, it's, it's, it's like English socialism of like, eh, just convince the people to do the good thing. Mm. It's never going to happen, you know? Yeah, I admire very much and agree with the idea that a central tenant of a the the sort of political strategy of a Marxist political party would be to say, would to pre- present oneself as being entirely anti-constitutional, to be the sort of radical outsiders to the system. Mm. But I also wonder what it would do. I I, I feel like a, a movement of that sort is always going to attract people who when it comes to it, are going to choose the opportunity to take political power if it's offered in some kind of like um, coalition basis, you know, or people who are going to think about um, moderating their views with a view to making their politics seem more acceptable to the establishment so that they can get into power faster and sort of like put in place at least minimal aspects to the uh, the socialist political program. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I mean that's, that was the fundamental, I guess that was the undoing of the Second International, right? That mm-hmm. was the split. There was this split between reformism and something more revolutionary. And the split of the revolutionaries drove potentially drove the reformist to be even more reformist. And I sort of wonder, I mean, it's something to think about going forward, but I sort of wonder, it's all good and well, I suppose, identifying this as the sort of core tenant of Marxist politics as it was laid down by Marx, and also to see it as the politics which built the second international parties to their sort of like high watermarks, I suppose. But I also have this, I also sort of like have this lingering feeling that, but yes, it did fail at a certain point. And I wonder whether how that failure can be escaped. And also sort of like can't help but sympathize with people who might be the sort of like radical social democrats in that scenario. Mm. Um well, it's hard not to sympathize with anyone doing anything, right? Yeah. Especially now. But I think it, yeah, I think it's probably time now to stop kind of trying to convince the establishment to allow things to be okay and to maybe convince people that these are the ideas that are beneficial to you, right? Like, I don't know. There's not much else to say other than that, but it's like whenever you hear like, there's kind of an analogy between like, or an analogous situation between like Democrats who are always like, we're, we're just never going to get any of these goddamn Republicans to vote Democrat. Don't even try talking to them. It's like, yeah, okay, don't try talking to Republicans. How about you try talking to like people who don't vote, mm-hmm. right? And it's something similar because it's like, I don't know. It's like, how about you try convincing the people that we're ostensibly trying to help, 
You know what I mean? And then like, hey, maybe they'll kind of be able to do the right thing on their own and not like convince these structures to do the good thing. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about um, stuff that came up in our last week's reading of The Mass Strike and Rosa Luxemburg and this distinction between like being in non-revolutionary times and being in revolutionary times, right? Mm. Um, and in relation to the kind of like the Marxist centrist strategy, it's almost like, if not that, what else? Yeah. And there isn't, what is the other option? And yeah. we don't really know, supposing that we one day find ourselves in some kind of like potentially revolutionary situation, we don't know what that situation is going to be. We don't know what the reality of that is going to be. Hmm. We've no idea what political structures, forms of strategy are going to be appropriate to that moment. Um, so we have only the option to fall back on the best of what has been presented by history as it's developed so far. Mm. And also, as you say, to like, this is the, this is the strategy that makes the appeal to the people that we ostensibly want yeah. to like empower and politicize and, uh, yeah. Champion. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's like, it's again, it's something similar again with people like, liberals who got mad at bernie for like you're gonna alienate other liberals and it's like <laughs> <laughs> i'm alienated <laughs> yeah it's uh, yeah it's just like oh my god politics perhaps bourgeois politics would not work out quite this well but politics seem like they're always best served when you're uh helping the people and your structures are built to help the people that you're ostensibly trying to help and obviously that isn't how the democratic party has like worked up its uh power because the people who they say they're trying to help and the people that they're actually helping are obviously quite different. But like, I don't know. Seems obvious, right? It seems obvious. But I guess that's just the idea of a class-based party as opposed to just a, you know, I want to take power, dude. Or you can just be a Blanquist. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. But Blanquist has a yeah, plan to pivot. fix climate we're change. We're pivoting. <laughs> yeah. We're going to become Blanquist. If a Blanquist has a really good Green New Deal, like if AOC comes out and she's like, actually, I'm a Blanquist and here's what I really want to do with the Green New Deal. I'd be like, all right. Yeah. I'm joining that insurrection movement. <laughs> <laughs> AOC insurrection. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. 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 Join that conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, okay. I think before... We kind of uh, get to our guests, <laughs> our huge guests. I think it's important to uh, talk a little bit about, I think, how uh, perhaps our economic thought has developed a bit, too. Because I think, like, our political thought, I think we're definitely, well, we're not coming to conclusions, but we're seeing a bit of some light, I suppose, that isn't just like, hey, expand the community of the Labour Party. Um, and I think... Correct me if I'm uh, speaking out of place, but I think for us, the Fundamental Principles book was pretty eye-opening, at least for just to see, like, you know, come to some answers about, like, oh, you, you're calling yourself a communist, what does that mean? Because, like, even in People's Republic of Walmart, we came across the idea that, like, just doing the central planning thing, just taking the Amazon algorithm, or just trying to do what the Soviet Union did, isn't really going to work, right? And so it's about... What it, it, you're calling yourself a communist, what does that mean? And trying to come up with something that is positive about communism and that isn't just entirely negative about capitalism, right? Like communism, I think, other than like the actual concrete ideas found in that book, the most important things for me were just like, you know, nobody should really listen to you at all if you don't have a plan. And even if that's just like a plan that's sketched out in that 
book that still has a lot of gray areas and a lot of things you still need to figure out, it's like you need to you need to at least be able to say something, right? Um, and I think it's it also has just helped to kind of like see things in a bit of perspective and to like, okay, you know, why did Marx and everybody talk about like capitalism is historically progressive, right? Like what are these historically progressive elements of capitalism? And how can we like focus on those and expand them to to like finally make good on the bourgeois promise of like universal freedom and liberty, right? Um, and so I think that like, obviously that book, because there's no separation between the political and the economic, that book obviously touched quite a bit on like, not like political thought, obviously, because it was an economic book, but like definitely helped me expand my understanding of what the problems are with, obviously with capitalism, but also with like trying to get past capitalism and how a class-based, a class, like a society that has moved on from class and a society that has moved on from like wage labor, what that actually looks like. And perhaps more importantly, like what are the important things you need to be focusing on to try and maximize and not minimize? Um, so we've said it before, folks, good book. And I would suggest perhaps reading it. Um, I would say, yeah. At least go and listen to our episodes. <laughs> yeah, our episodes where we bumble our way through it. But um, yeah, I think that that's been for me the book that's kind of like blown my mind the most. Um, although I did really, yeah, I don't know. I did really like The Rose of Luxembourg last week, but definitely like on, not on the same scale. Um, yeah. I mean, I th- yeah, I think the most exciting things, the most exciting readings and I think... Um, the fundamental principles is at the top of the list of this for me. The most exciting readings are the ones that we can, I feel like I can incorporate broadly into mm-hmm. a system of understanding and also ones which synthesize well with other things that we've read in some ways in unexpected ways. Right? Sure. What I, the thing that the, the, for me, the thing that the fundamental principles synthesized most interestingly with in a lot of ways was, um, the origins of capitalism mm. because in some ways like the origins of capitalism the alan meekson's wood book that we read posited this sort of like this transition which contained a degree of continuity and therefore in a lot of ways the things that were most interesting about the fundamental principles book given that they drew from um, the critique of the Gotha program in a lot of ways, which is also a text which is very much about how there will be have to be degrees of continuity in this transformation, i.e. the transformation from capitalism to socialism or whatever we're going to call it. Um, I found that those the aspects of the, that book which were very much like here is how the system is going to be analogous to, but fundamentally different from capitalism in ways which make that process sort of like, I guess, fundamentally progressive and um, make those changes sufficiently radical to overcome capitalism, I suppose, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it was fun how, like, obviously we'd come across some of those ideas. It's an extrapolation of portions of capital that we've read and also like the reading um critique of the growth program also like mm. um i very much enjoyed sort of combining all of those together yeah um yeah the other, no, go on. i was just gonna say i think too that like i remember when we read 
uh, origins of capitalism, I was kind of a little bit worried about like, whoa, how the hell are we going to fundamentally change our social relations before we do anything else, right? Like, because it's pretty clear from that that like, if you want to breed a change in your mode of production, you have to fundamentally change your social relations first, and that will kind of like make everything fall in line. And I just couldn't even conceive of a way of getting out of capitalism from that, right? Um, and I think that like fundamental principles offers a very like, just like, hey, here's a way to do that. Mm-hmm. That I was just like, not not expecting, but I was, yeah, pleasantly surprised by. Mm. Because it's like, even if the question still remains of like, how do we do that? What's laid out in that book is like, this is how it could happen, if that makes sense. Like, it's not explaining how you do that organizationally or anything like that. But it's like, here are some economic principles that you could lay out that would fundamentally change the social relations of everything in a way that is analogous to the to the to like the Brenner, like Wood thesis of the origin of capitalism. Um, and I think like once that was like the first big connection between readings that I made and I was just like, oh man, mm-hmm. wow, it can be done. It gave me hope, I think is what I'm saying. Mm. It's difficult that the communist movement hopes to achieve the first planned intentional mm. transition between modes of production. I've been thinking a lot about that. Uh-huh. Just that general idea of like planned because like, I don't know. I don't know if it. I, I don't know if it would be. Would it be is it, if yeah. yeah, if it's planned mm. so much as like, this is just the inherent contradictions working themselves out, and maybe the working class kind of just gets like carried by that, right? By its own interests, because it's like I suppose you could call it planned, right? But like maybe conscious is a better word. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, one of the weirdest connections that I made was. When we read the Paul Matic piece on council communism and the degree to which the transit, the proposed transition from capitalism to communism, that's, I suppose, indicative, that is, that I guess the core principle of the the transition envisaged by council communists and other left communists seemed very similar to the one that's described by Brenner and Wood, i.e. a transition in social relations which is emergent from the class struggle of the society in which they exist, if that makes sense. So, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was em- emergent qualities in the class struggles of fe- struggle of feudalism that gave this sort of fluke change to the relationship between uh, tenant, peasant, farmers, and landlords that sort of created this new social dynamic that was the sort of like Mm. the uh, nascent origin of capitalism. And there was something in the the unplanability of... That's a terrible use of English. (laughs) Um, There was something in the the basic ideas of the council communist political theory, which was very similar to that. Like we are not going to give the working class the plan for the future. It's going to be emergent from their class struggle. And it's only at a certain point in their development of their consciousness that they will create the world necessary, the the sort of like material basis for the transition to communism kind of thing. Um, and I learned very recently that um, quite a lot of the people associated with like 
Endnotes, one of the main like communization texts, are quite heavily inspired by Robert Brenner or even students of Robert Brenner. So like there does seem to me to be this connection between sort of like that um theory of the transition from feudalism to capitalism and a sort of connection to uh, a type of left communism that granted we've only had sort of cursory interaction with and haven't gotten a great deal out of reading accounts of communist text i.e the fundamental principles but at the same time like we found ourselves gravitating much more toward like yeah um the sort of like marxist center political strategy yeah well i think that i think that the luxembourg and the mcnair have definitely helped uh i fucking just had the word in my head and i already forget it end the contradiction in my head of those two political strategies yeah. of like the right and left yeah. right especially the luxembourg because it, it's, it was exactly what you were saying earlier about like the downtime versus the revolution. What do you do in both of these time periods? And it's like, you can't just have a purely party-based approach and the party will just do the thing. They'll do the revolution, say the revolution happens now and whatever, because it is up to like the broader class-based movement to like, and the class itself, I suppose, to like get caught up in this upheaval and push the party into where it wants to go. Like there really isn't a contradiction, I think, between the like party-based approach and the like council communist approach. And I think that like maybe the like sectification and ossification of everything and the left has kind of made it seem like there is, but I really don't think that there is. Yeah. Well said. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Roll just got to everybody love everybody. That's what I think. <laughs> um, what else bullshit did we read? What else did we do? <laughs> Uh, there was the, <laughs> I started that sentence and I really don't know. It's all been good. I mean, it's all been great. <laughs> I mean, I think there are a lot of things that we've perhaps incorporated into a broader canon and a lot of things that have so far fallen by the wayside, perhaps, hmm. that we're interested in of themselves, but whether we've yet found ways to incorporate them or like, um, hmm. and today I was thinking, I don't know whether you agree with that. Today I was thinking at least for our journey in exploring these ideas there's something norm not not virtuous to sort of like lord ourselves or anything but just to say <laughs> that there's something positive in that kind of like yeah exploring around to see what was going to click and what wasn't 100 percent, yeah um but yeah also they're all good <laughs> they're also they're all great i think that we've said this before even the even the louis althusser <laughs> even <episode>. that one <laughs> as the algorithm has bestowed upon us um I think that I, I keep I want to say that like the bookchin got fallen a little bit by the wayside, but we didn't engage with bookchin in that reading as an anarchist. I think mm -hmm. we engaged with it as like ecology. Um, so I would be interested to kind of go back to that thought and explore it from kind of like maybe different angles. But I think that like the ecological angle is like before the most interesting. Yeah. So you know. Yeah. Yeah. Have we talked on mic about the idea of finding some anarchists that we might actually? Have some that we haven't cancelled yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, we can't read Proudhon. Yeah, gone, gone. Um, Bakunin, I mean, gone. Bakunin, yeah, gone. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It'd be interesting to read some Bakunin, but um, more Bookchin. I would really like to read again. Just kind of engaging with that as ecology. Um, I don't know. Yeah, you know. I mean, anar anarchists are they're they're going to use this word for maybe the second time in podcast history. They're comrades. Like, of course they are. They want to end to class society. Um, and Hoops Among Us hasn't been, <laughs> hasn't been 
hasn't been at least a little bit like interested at that in our teens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, okay. and I know we've we've talked. We in... welcome our anarchist of comrades, course. <laughs> of course. brethren, listeners. If for no other reason than what are we? I don't know. <laughs> um, we have talked off mic about um, reading some stuff that we don't think we will jive with, jive with, vibe with. Um, and I think that could be healthy to do. Um, yeah, my initial idea behind this episode was to try and like work out what our canonical texts are. Hmm. And then maybe going forward over the next months, the next year, we could try and find things that perhaps contradict those. Maybe not even necessarily in a way which is furthering our uh, ability to debunk, debunk them, but maybe even to incorporate them, maybe to see what they have to offer kind of thing. I think we've I done d- that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of how we've come to this kind of yeah. Like conclusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quote, unquote. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I definitely would like, I think I would like to find more. I'd like, I would really, maybe I would like to, I was about to say maybe in my own reading, but I don't do any reading that's not for the <laughs> podcast. That's why we do the podcast so that we have to read things. I would like to explore more broadly some of these concepts around the transition to capitalism. Mm. Um, explore that field of ideas mm. a little bit more. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think I'd like to read quite a bit more about um, ecology. I think I'd write, like to read um, something from, go back to some Mike Davis, and I'd like to read something from Planet of Slum, because that was a book I picked up a long time ago and never got into. City of Quartz, too, I read because I was like, Los Angeles, sign me up. And I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> this is a bad, bad city. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I also have a copy of Planet of Sums that I've never oh, do really you? looked at, so... <laughs> There we go. We both have a copy of something. We must read it for the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. Plenty of stuff to read, I yeah. think. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I would just like to read more about ecology just because it's like, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know, important, I suppose. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah, God. it was a very brief engagement that we had with it. And mm. yeah, we could do more. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'm, do some more reading on metabolic rift that isn't just like, here's an essay explaining the definition of this term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I, yeah, I did, I did when I was sick recently, gun through um, Marx and Nature, the Paul Burkett book, and there's no way we're getting anything <laughs> out of that for the show. No fucking way. Um, yeah. I, um, I mean... I'm going to plug another podcast now. Um, Cosmonaut very recently had a very excellent interview that they did with, um, I think his name's James Moore. He wrote a book called uh, Capitalism and Its Place in Nature. He's responsible, I think, for popularizing the idea of the capitalocene. Mm. Um, and he's very much, my understanding is he's very much looking to sort of synthesize the idea of capitalism and develop a, a comprehensive understanding of capitalism's relationship to nature and how it sort of like exists with nature kind of thing i think Um, yeah and also i like what also excited me about looking at that book was he seemed to hold with a conception of the origins of capitalism which was directly opposed to brenner Mm. and much more in line with what we read about in that open veins of latin Mm. america book um the primitive accumulation yeah, stuff. yeah 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 um 
So I, I recommend go listen to that interview. Mm. Maybe we'll read that book and maybe that will be or something uh, by Mr. Moore. Mr. Moore. And uh, maybe uh, that will be both our dipping our toe back Ooh. into ecology and uh, considerations around the environment and its mm. relationship to capitalism. And then also indulging my interest in finding some counter arguments, different arguments from the Brenner thesis mm. as well. Yeah, I think cursorily, obviously, because I haven't looked at it at all, but like my idea, my reaction to the idea of like the capitalocene is that it's perhaps just a bit more specific than the Anthropocene, mm -hmm. because like been plenty of mass extinctions before capitalism that humans have like directly caused, right? Just by virtue of being like good hunters, mm -hmm. you know, and the tools and stuff. But yeah, that would be really interesting to read. Um, we should read some bourgeois people too. It'd be interesting to engage with Jared Diamond, although I feel like we. We would just read something like that and go, this is so fucking like, basic. It's like, yeah, I don't know. It's like, of course it was the guns and the germs and the steel, but like, what about considerations of like, hey, maybe other things about why these happened, right? Um, I think that it was like maybe one of my first like, wait a minute, what's going on in like my history class? Something about this doesn't make any sense because like, I think one of his arguments there is like, obviously the germs developed as like, his argument is that like, a lot of the diseases, if not all of the diseases that were spread to the New World and killed all of these people came from, like, humans living in Europe in close proximity to farmed animals, and there weren't, like, as many, if any, like, domesticable animals that you could, like, milk or ride or whatever in the New World. And so, you know, when these two cultures met, but it's like, wait a minute, like, why, like, there's an argument for, like, the biology of why that happened, but, like, you know, how were humans able to set up these societies in such a way, et cetera, et cetera? It couldn't just be, like, oh, they didn't have the horse. You know, so they couldn't figure it out. So, yeah. We shall see. <laughs> we shall see. Um, well, we're running out of time, so I don't think we're going to have time for our guests, Dan. That kind of sucks. Oh, it would have been great. It would have been, been great. It would have been, been great. We've just rambled on again for too long. <laughs> yeah. Just going to have to leave them sitting outside <laughs> in the green room waiting. Shame. Damn shame. Mm. We actually had Maybe Corbin and Sanders time. here, but yeah. they're just sitting outside in the cold. So. Yeah. yeah, well, they're going to say that we don't already know. <laughs> yeah, we know, Corbin. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Um, uh -huh. Although he could have told us about like growing courgettes or something. That's true. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, we didn't even talk about our beans. Well, we actually did talk about our beans. We didn't talk enough yeah. about our beans. Yeah. Quickly, Dan, what have you learned from a year's gardening this past year? Um, what mistakes have I made? I guess planning is good. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Planning is good. Um, slugs and snails are bad. Mm. Had a real hard time with the slugs and the snails this year. Um, blight's a real bastard. Fucking blight, dude. Yeah. Lost all the tomatoes to blight. Got to grow your tomatoes in a very sad corner of your flat. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, having a good, a better way, to, uh, having a better way to propagate seedlings is something that I need to do. Yeah. Um, this year I was trying to do it indoors, underneath a sort of like daylight light. But I had the light very close to the plants that I was mm. trying to propagate, and they all got very leggy very quickly <laughs> without really developing substantial enough roots, which made them very hard to oh, transplant. Um, yeah, maybe good. that's it. Planting good. Do good. Good planting. <laughs> good planning leads to good planting. Oh, yeah. a centrally planned garden. <laughs> centrally planted garden. I've learned that slugs are my nemesis, but at the same time, I dig them. I think they're cool uh -huh, animals. Uh -huh. I think they just sit there and they're pretty cool. Mm. I like a good slug. 
Foxes, on the other hand. Foxes, on the other hand. Whoa, I'm a Tory when it comes to foxes. That's not actually true, but I've spent quite a lot of time off. in my, a lot of time in my garden over the past few weeks observing the activities of squirrels. They've been incredibly active, and mm. our garden seems to be like something of a thoroughfare between like they're they're basically constantly crossing it, right? But quite often they have to come down and go on ground level to get across. But also, I've seen them digging in my bed so many times, <laughs> burying like burying, yeah, yeah, burying yeah. nuts and all yeah. sorts of things. I've had so many little like oak trees. Yeah, so up. often I find yeah. like random trees growing <laughs> yeah, in places. You bastards. squirrels. <laughs> Yeah, um, so I, I think know. maybe it wasn't the foxes. Maybe it was the squirrels. Uh, one of them took a huge shit. Definitely the foxes, or it's someone at the allotment. So. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I wouldn't put it past the, <laughs> yeah, honestly, the internal politics of the allotment <laughs> seem to get quite fraught. So you might have pissed somebody off, and you don't even know it. That's true. Yeah. I think the uh, most important thing I've learned from gardening in this past year has been what we talked about with um, the poor proles fellas. It is, on a concrete level, what can you do? First of all, manage your own anxieties about everything that's going on. And I know that it's not everybody's bag, but for me, there is no better way to do that than growing stuff. It just makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you're doing something in terms of like, hey, I'm not going to the store and buying a bunch of fucking plastic wrapped, you know, bananas or something like that or whatever. Well, I'm not growing bananas, right? But like, you know, it makes you feel like you're doing something and it gets you out and it gets you enjoying things and gets you talking to people and it makes you more interesting. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. And attractive. <laughs> and attractive. People will be like, he always has dirt under his nails. That's disgusting. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. It is a very gratifying to grow your entire supply of a thing if you mm. could manage that. Um, Still eating potatoes. I find it really nice. Yeah. nice. I found a couple of your potatoes in the cupboard the other day that you gave to me. Put them in a <laughs> nice stew. Around. Yes. It's good. Excellent. It's good. Yeah. Um, I find it quite anxiety inducing. You put a lot of energy into <laughs> producing these things and then sometimes they fail and therefore you fail. Yeah. Mm. I think I, I get really pissed off when I mess something up like that and it just makes me be like, I need to do a better job of this next time. I know that like... Don't move your goddamn squashes once they're in the ground because they're never going to grow. Uh, you know, get some damn neem oil, spray it on the leaves. It's just all learning, right? It's good to have a hobby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Quite. Quite. <laughs> and one that you don't really have to, like, go and, like, consume for. Obviously, I like going out and buying, like, oh, a nice new pair of clippers for, you know, the grass or whatever. But, yeah, it's good. Good stuff, folks. Uh-huh. Earth. Uh-huh. And it, yeah. Champions of the Earth. Champions of the Earth it is indeed what we are. Well, I've been told that Colin Powell is dead, so he won't be coming on the show today, yeah. which is a shame. Um, and same with Donald Rumsfeld. So this is mm. the end. Here's okay. to another year. My yeah. God, 52 more. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, I'm down. Yeah. Dodgers playing again tonight. They yeah. won last night 2-1. to one. I saw the highlight. Wasn't that a good game yesterday? Yeah, dude. And Cody Bellinger, you stay up too. For like, you were going to stay up. I stayed up. What through... time did you go to bed when you thought they were going to lose? Yes. I watched that inning where, where they just walked what over Walker like Bueller. Six, and yeah. I was just like, I am going to bed angry. And then I woke up and I was like, Cody Bellinger won it for us? Get out of here. Um, that's mm. chills. Chills, Dan. No other sport does drama like baseball um all right okay go dodgers and they play again tonight they are did they was it two nights ago they played did they play last night they played last night yeah and they're gonna play again tonight yeah, yeah so yeah. it's game four game four okay and it is so funny because i might regret saying this but i'm not worried at all about the series even though they're down 2-0 because last year 2-1 
It, well, it was. Oh, they were down 2-0. Yeah. 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 Um, last year, they were down 3-1 to the same team. And then they came back. Came back and won, so it's yeah, like, going to be fine. We love, the, we love you, Atlanta, but love yeah. the Dodgers more, folks. All right. We're in my 66 right now in anticipation. I'm a little fanboy. Uh, let's end this before I embarrass myself anymore. <laughs> um, sincere thanks. Let's say it. We don't thank people who listen. Sincere thanks to everybody who actually listens because, like, we've been coming up on averaging 100 listeners, and that's fucking awesome. Uh-huh. That is, like, so cool. Especially because, like, I know exactly one person who listens to it regularly, and he may or may not be my father. So. <laughs> Everyone else, no idea. That rocks. So, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Many, many thanks. It's incredibly heartening. No idea who you are, <laughs> what you think you're doing. Uh, but I, I'd say we love you, and we do. Yeah, love you, folks. All right. Well, I've been <laughs> Jack, and we will be here... For another year, <laughs> most likely. Ad nauseum. <laughs> Ad nauseum. All right. I'll uh, see I've, you next week. I've been done. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It's been, once again, great fun. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People too by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time.